Welcome to the audiobook version of the novel Mercy Not Sacrifice by Dan Parks, read by the author. Chapter 4 Grandma Marta Grandma Marta had taken notice to a growing pain inside of her abdomen and had attributed it to menstrual cramps. Once admitted to the hospital, the doctor asked her about menopause. In a semi-conscious state, she answered, That was years ago. Uncle Sam's wife, Carmela, had been with her that afternoon. Carmela was more friendly than pretty, and her most memorable feature was her laugh. She was gifted in the art of conversation, and could bounce words back and forth, talking all night without truly saying anything at all, and had short, light brown hair that was cut about two inches from her scalp. Grandma Marta looked good for 80 years old. She had a slim frame and walked as if she was three quarters of her age. She wore her blue fitted slacks and white sweater with a gold brooch and matching flats. Her hair had been fixed that morning down at the clip by Neva Nelson, and she looked as pretty as she ever had. She had called and asked Carmela to lunch that day, and they dined at Keepers, owned by Jamie and Kay Weiss. The Weisses were the only couple in the existence of mankind that worked well together, and it was a magic to see. The first thing visible in Keepers was a long bar that stretched almost the entire length of the space. The restaurant was more of a rectangle than a square, as the old buildings that lined Main Street and Gardenstown were. Exposed brick from floor to ceiling lined the wall opposite the griddle, where Kay pulled the double duty of tending the bar and cooking. Her best drink was an old-fashioned, and her secret to it was an extra quarter ounce of whiskey. The favorite thing on the menu was a smoked cheese that was crowned with beef atop two pieces of Texas toast. Jamie worked as waiter and restaurateur, and was at his best when amongst the customers. About the time Carmela had finished eating her cheeseburger, she noticed that Grandma Marta had barely touched her plate. I'm not feeling good, Grandma Marta said. It's my stomach. You haven't even touched your food, Carmela replied. I've gotten nauseous, Grandma Marta said. I've had a pain in my belly button for some time, and that's why I wanted to come out today. I knew if I was getting sick, it might be a while before I go out again. I'll get you home. Jamie was apologetic to Grandma Marta for her becoming ill, and he kept his hand on the small of her back as he walked her to the door. I hope it wasn't my food. It wasn't, Jamie, she responded. She had already begun to bend over at her torso by that time. Even if it wasn't, Jamie said, you came in here fine and left sick. Next time you come back, your meal's on the house. The pain continued to grow inside her stomach, and reality became a passive state, and all that was active was her memories. In her mind was a picture of Grandpa John on the day that they were married. He had been in his military formals and had never been so handsome. She thought of their honeymoon night and longed for that feeling once more. Grandma Marta was from a Missouri farm family. In her childhood, she was raised up near the river in the town of DeWitt. Her father was a tobacco farmer who owned 50 acres of ground near the bend of the river on Highway 24. Born during the Great Depression, she had learned strength from her parents and was raised not to complain because someone, somewhere, had it worse off than she. When Carmela had got her into the car, sweat was pouring down from both of their heads. Grandma Marta called out to Grandpa John as she saw him as clear as an October sunset over the Missouri River. John, I need you. The change in her had happened so fast that Carmela didn't have time to catch up, and she took the next logical step of calling an ambulance. When I got to the hospital, my uncles Archie and Sam stood out front. Sam waved the hand that held his cigarette. Johnny! Uncle Sam was a taller than average man, and his eyes spoke before his mouth, and they said that he was a kind man. He had balded early in life and wore a ball cap every day in response. 
I walked towards him with a nervous smile. How is she? Not good, Archie said. He took a long drag on a cigarette, and his hand shook as he pulled it from his mouth. Appendicitis is what the doctor said. It burst a week ago, and she never said a word. Uncle Archie was a lean man. His hair had turned an auburn gray as he aged, and it matched his ruddy, pigmented skin. Archie had the nervous, beady eyes of a snake, and he used less words than either one of his brothers, but he had more hair than both, which might have been a correlation. We stood there like honest men who couldn't do anything about the situation they were in. They looked as powerless about the situation as I felt. They nursed their nicotine for comfort, which made me realize that I needed something to pacify myself. But Lori wasn't there. Can I have a smoke? Yeah, responded Archie as he shook one out of his pack. Sam stood next to us with his feet crossed and leaned against the parking pole. He had on the red polo shirt that he wore when out of his work uniform. Thought you quit smoking, Sam asked. I thought about my answer before I spoke. I did until now. Is my dad here? Yeah, Archie replied. Upstairs. Archie and Sam looked to each other as they both shook their heads. We can't get a hold of Grandpa John, Sam said. Carmela called him when Mom was brought in. Will he be here soon? No, responded Sam. He went out. Four? I asked. He took out a load, Archie said, and left a note. Archie dropped his cigarette to the ground and snubbed it out with the toe of his tennis shoe. My uncles and I worked with Grandpa John in the trucking company that he had built and called Carmen Carriers. Archie worked in the office and kept the books. Sam was an operation guy and drove when needed, but mostly called the shots. I was a truck driver just like Grandpa John. What did it say, I asked. Sam looked over at Archie and then off in the distance towards the road out front. The hospital that Grandma Marta was taken to was in Columbia, up Highway 240 and on to I-70, about an hour's drive from Gardenstown. It was a small college city that would have been deemed a town on any coast. The commerce there was based solely on the state university. The local economy was so concentrated on the aspect of education that it became oversaturated with degrees which led to college-educated waiters and baristas, earning pennies more than minimum wage. They would have been better off to work for Grandpa John. It was sealed, Sam said, but he wrote it to Mom. Archie grimaced. If it was sincere, he would be here, Archie said, instead of leaving. Most people eventually reach a point when they can talk about their parents in a conversational manner. It's then that they realize that they tried their best with what they had. It could take becoming a parent yourself to understand how hard the job is. I love my Grandpa John, and if it hadn't been for him, I couldn't have made it through my own childhood. But I wasn't naive enough to think he couldn't have been different as a father. I saw the look of anger in Archie's eyes towards him and the look of shame in Sam's. It told me that this was indeed a truth, and I understood the sentiment as it was what I held against my own parents. What did the note say? Read it for yourself. He reached in his back pocket and pulled out the folded note. I opened it in my hands. It read, Dear Marta, I can picture it now. You are surrounded by the family that you created during your wonderful life. Your oldest son, Archie, the sensible one, is there with his wife, Regina, and his daughter, Kylie, and husband, Stefan, and their boy, Tate. Your second son, Sam, the strong one, and his wife, Carmela, with both their sons, Bill and Rita, and their son, Billy Jr., Lenny and his wife, Vera, and their three daughters, Megan, Marley, and Maria. Our youngest, Donnie, the talkative one, with his sons, Ian, and wife, Kathleen, and their children, Jeffrey, Winston, and Selma, and my youngest grandson, Johnny. The beautiful thing is that all these people have life because of what you have done and the sacrifices that you have made. 
I hope that you can take a step back and look at the big picture of your life and see what you've made. You are a strong, capable, and beautiful woman who has lived life well. I'm sorry that I can't be there today, but I have made that choice because it is your day to spend with your family, the same family that I have neglected for far too long. You deserve their love today, and I don't want to take that away from you with the anger that they have towards me. I'm not there at the hospital to the side of your bed because I feel as though I don't deserve to be. That spot is reserved for your sons, your grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. I was told that this might be it for you, and that they had the priests coming in to give you the last rites. Let this be the last rightly thing that I share with you. I'm sorry, and you have been the best thing that has ever happened to me. Please give me mercy. I love you. Love, John. It's all bullshit, Archie said. Standing outside the hospital was the first time in a long time I thought about what I wanted to say. Why didn't he want to tell her those words himself, I asked. The front door of the hospital opened, and a nurse rolled out a new mother in a wheelchair with her firstborn in her arms, and the father led the way. She stood up while he opened the back door of the sedan at the curb. He placed the baby softly into the car seat, and the couple exchanged a look of assurance. A new bond had formed between them as they brought life into the world, and they would never be the same. I folded the letter in my hands, and as I made the second crease, the words your family faced me. And I understood. He had made a disconnect from the life that he had made with Grandma Marta, his reason being that he'd put a certain weight of expectation upon himself. And it was only natural to apply that same to his family. But supposing that wives and children and grandchildren will be exactly how you want them can only lead to disappointment. Grandpa John disappointed himself in doing so, and I knew that sentiment. I might have been the only family member that understood him not being there that day. I knew the thought of having something to want to drive away from. Whatever his excuse, it isn't good enough to miss the death of his wife, Sam said. Of our mom and your grandma. Sam glanced at his watch and then puffed the last of his cigarette. He stared at the third story window above us. You ready to go up? He asked. It was a short elevator ride to the third floor. Down the long hallway and through the set of double doors was where the Carmen family spilt out of room 315. The men held up the wall opposite the door. Archie drew into his son-in-law, Stefan, and Sam leaned inside the room to check on the situation, and I crouched next to my brother Ian in his chair. Dad here, I asked. Ian looked up from his phone and pointed to the room. A chorus of unified voices emitted from it, and I was pulled inside to a priest leading the rosary. The beads in his hand said they were on the fifth decade. Hail Mary, he said, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. He took a short breath and began again. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now at the hour of our death. Amen. Once they had begun the third Hail Mary, I saw that the room was how Grandpa John predicted. Uncles and cousins and kids brothers and sisters and mothers. My dad sat at Grandma Marta's side and held her almost lifeless hand. The fourth Hail Mary began. The prayer held a peacefulness in its cadence. The memorization that had formed from a Catholic upbringing took away any calls for conscious thought. Their eyes held on the concentration as they were lost in worship. Of what? I did not know. My dad stared at Grandma Marta, but he looked past her. The prayers of his youth were beneath him now. In his conversion from Catholicism, he became his own version of Martin Luther.
The 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, ninth, and 10th Hail Marys began and ended without hesitation, and I joined in. The rhythm and the words and the camaraderie brought comfort. A calmness came to my mind, and I closed my eyes to be gracious for it. But when they opened, Lori stood before me. She pressed her nose against mine, and her eyes perforated through me. When I reached to take her hips in my hands and pull her to me, she disappeared. Lori was like the fog that comes in the springtime, when it passes through the Missouri River from east to west. A barge can be seen coming before it enters it, and then disappears as if it was a bad memory. But the foghorn reminds us of where it is, and all too soon, it reappears. Lori reminded me of where I was, and who I was, and who she had been. Our Father, the priest said, in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Each face in the room contained steady anticipation. Even the men from the hall had made their way through the door and into the room. Grandma Marta's body was covered by a blanket from the bed. A tube from a catheter ran underneath it, and hung from it was an ostomy bag. Its consistency began to change as the yellow color of urine began to marbleize with the crimson color of blood. It started at her hands and then worked up her arms to her neck and finally her face as she became stained with the gray tint of death. The priest began the final prayer that ended the last decade of the rosary. Glory be, he said, to the Father and to the Son. Her face told me that one's last breaths will be a struggle, but not for the dying, rather for the ones that they leave behind. Grandma Marta had waited until all of her family was present, but when she realized that he wasn't coming, she relaxed and quit. Her spirit had resigned to fate, and her will to fight was gone. Sam stood from a crouch and walked to her and placed Grandpa John's note inside of her palm. And to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now. Her monitor began to pulse with the few heartbeats that she had left, and the room sighed with it. Fear could be heard and anxiety was seen. My nephew Jeffrey looked to me, and in a sign of strength I held a closed fist to my chest. A nurse came and had to wade through the bodies by the door to get to her, and as she worked the room entered a chill. And ever shall be, world without... The nurse worked feverishly with the heart monitor, then with Grandma Marta and the IV and back to the monitor. There is a certain type of maturity that develops only through experience. It is gained through trial and error, and through such penance what is learned is that there is a time for everything. A time to live, and a time to learn. A time to build, and a time to rest. A time to be born, and a time to die. The nurse knelt down beside her and realized that there was nothing to be done. End. Amen. The life left Grandma Marta, and the family was still. But I was drawn to who was standing in the doorway. Lori stood there and beckoned me to follow her out. The alarm of the heart monitor produced a short and high tone with its flat line, and I stood up. I'm sorry, Lori said. There was nothing you could do. The nurse walked to the monitor and pulled the plug on the alarm, and as she made her way out of the room, Lori went with her.